All right, kids, come on up front. Come on up for our children's message. All right, what a crew this morning. Everyone's looking good. Feeling good? Yeah? All right. Yes. All right. So today, as we make our way through the book of Acts, we're going to read of Paul's second journey. Remember, we learned of a journey, journey uh, traveling around, preaching the gospel. Today, we're going to re- learn of his second journey. He's traveling around. He's preaching the gospel and strengthening the churches, helping them to be built up in Christ. And one of the places he stops at along the way that we'll hear of today is the city of Athens. And as he did, Paul uh, was preaching the gospel because that's what he does, right? And so he was preaching about Jesus. He was sharing the gospel with them. That's what he was preaching about. And the people in Athens were curious. They wanted to hear more. They were wondering more. We wanted to learn more about what you're teaching us. And so Paul was able to preach before a large gathering of people. And he told them how the Lord God was the creator of all things, and that he gives life to all. So every living thing that we see around us is a creation of God. It's not here by chance, but it was purposed by God, created by God. Paul continues so that not only does God give life, but he also determines the specific times and places that each person lives. So you are not here by accident. God planned for you to live at this time in the family that you're living in, with, in this place, with these people. God had it all planned out. Do you know why God did that? He did that. He has you here right now so that you would seek God and that you would find him. That's why he has you here right now. God wants you to know him and be in a right relationship with him. But there's a big problem to that. What's the problem between you and God? You can say, what is it? Sin. Yeah, sin. Is the problem your sin or God's sin? Or say it out loud. It's our sin, right? God doesn't sin. Everyone has sin, right? God doesn't sin. So the problem isn't God. The problem is us, each one of us. You have sin, and that's the problem. And so as Paul's preaching, he told the people that there is a judgment coming. Sin. And so the people were sin, and there would be consequences for sin. And so the people were to repent. They were to turn from their sin. They were to leave their sin behind, and they were to believe in the gospel. They were to trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for their salvation and for them to have forgiveness of their sin and eternal life. They were to repent, to turn from their sin, and turn towards God in Christ Jesus. And so do you know what happened as he was preaching? telling that? Some people didn't like it, and they rejected that. They said, we're not going to believe that stuff. They chose not to believe. But others believed, and they came to faith in Jesus Christ. So how about for you? Will you turn from your sin, and will you trust Christ? Will you believe the gospel that Jesus came and lived perfectly and died on the cross to pay for your sin, that he took your judgment for sin? And then he rose again to eternal life that you might have life too. Absolutely. Great. I'm glad to hear that. So that's something we all need to 
to believe in and follow Jesus in that way. So that's part of what Paul, part of what we'll see in Paul's second journey today. So thanks for coming up, everybody. You can go back and have a seat. We are in the book of Acts. Uh, we're in the last few verses of chapter 15, starting at 1536, and we'll be through 1823 today or 22. Uh, so if you remember, we're going through the entirety of the book of Acts. We're not taking it slow. We're taking kind of entire whole sections. And this one is, as Pastor Jeff said, the second missionary journey of Paul. So the Acts is the historical account of how the gospel went throughout the world. It started just in Jerusalem where Christ, after Christ died and rose and ascended, the church was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. The apostles were. They preached the gospel and thousands of Jewish people turned from their Jewishness, turned from their sin from the, with the Jews. Christ and the church was first established there in Jerusalem. But they entered into conflict with the Jews and some of the Jews began to persecute these Christians who were Jews, killing them even. So those Jews were scattered. They went to the outlying areas of Judea, kind of their regional area, and began to continue to preach the gospel. And the church was built up in Samaria and Judea. And then some even went further than that. We see some like Barnabas and Paul go to Cyprus, an island, or to Antioch outside of Jewish areas to Gentile areas. And they preach the gospel. And in Antioch, a good church was established. Antioch is like straight north of Jerusalem, just outside the, the borders of Judea. A church was established there, and they sent Paul and Barnabas out to go to the Roman world, the Greek-speaking world, to preach the gospel and continue to build the church in cities and regions in the Roman Gentile area. And, and Paul is sent three times by this church in Antioch. We saw the first one a couple weeks ago. Uh, and now we're in the second missionary journey. Next week, we'll do the third. And so I want to take that entire missionary journey in one Sunday. What we're going to do is what we've done before. We're going to read through the entirety of it, Bear with me. You'll probably want your Bible out. I'll have a map up. You can see where some of these cities are, these regions are. And I'm going to stop along the way. So when our family goes on vacations, we are all about the destination. We never stop except to use the bathroom and eat. And mostly we eat as we're driving because it is all about getting there. This is not how this sermon's going to be. It's about enjoying the ride. So we're going to stop along the way, point out some things, and try to apply it in a way. And, and let me say something else before we get into it. Why are you here to hear preaching? What's the purpose of this? The purpose is God bringing his word to bear to persuade and move your conscience. The sermon is a tool that God uses to bring me and who I am to bring his word to you, to who you are, to change you. Now, this kind of change isn't like a radical transformation. It's rather a slow process over years of coming under the preaching where you 
and your worldliness are conformed to the word of God and to the image of Christ. And so we don't just preach doctrine to fill your head with a bunch of truth, although that's, we'll do that. We preach doctrine so that you can be changed by it. Uh, and so hopefully you're here for that. You're here because your life isn't as pleasing to God as you'd like it. Your life isn't as loving to others as you'd like it. That you realize that there are still worldly, carnal patterns of thought that you would like to be transformed and conformed to the Word of God. And that in this way, God's Word is like a hammer. It, it is pulverizing your worldliness to bits and rebuilding you in the image of Christ. The Word of God is like a sword plunging and thrusting into you very uncomfortably in order to bleed out that which is ungodly and restore you to godliness. So let me pray. And then I want to begin in Acts 15.36. Again, I think it'd be helpful for you to have your Bible open that you can follow along because I'm going to read a bit, stop, and say a few things along the way. And hopefully by this way of doing it, it's, it's helpful to seeing the entirety of this, what God is doing. Father in heaven, let your steadfast love come to us, please. We need your salvation according to the promises in your word. We trust it. Take it not from us. Help us to hope in it. Help us to keep your law continually that we might walk in your place under your blessing. And so God, give us now your spirit that we might meditate on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this secondary mission, a second missionary journey took about three years and covered some 2,700 miles, both by land and by sea. In 1536 to 41, we see the what God did in preparing them to go. If you remember in Acts 15, we had great unity built in the church as the church rebuked those, gent or those Jewish believers who were saying that you have to believe Jesus and you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so they fought this battle that uh, brought unity. See, you're all looking at the map already. Children. <laughs> All right, uh, and, and Paul and Barnabas were the two people fighting this battle most severely. They were working together, hand in hand, brothers in the Lord, fighting in the trenches for the faith of God's people, and they won. They protected the sheep. Unfortunately, the next thing you see is them have a fight and they divide. That's where we're at here. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return, let us go back and retrace our steps on the first missionary journey and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. See how they are. Barnabas wanted to take with them John Mark. If you remember, Mark was Barnabas's nephew. Uh, and Mark, in, on the first missionary journey, had abandoned them. He left. We don't know why the circumstances that might have had to do with this question of circumcision, that he was on the wrong side of that. But for whatever reason, he wasn't faithful, he wasn't trustworthy, and he left. Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. That's the last we'll hear Barnabas in the 
in Acts. Now, that doesn't mean that Barnabas is evil and wicked. It's just from here on out, we'll see sooner or later that the person writing this begins to use the pronoun we. That Luke, the author of this, actually is one of Paul's missionary companions. And so Luke is with uh, Paul, and so we're going to see that and not Barnabas. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through uh, Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So one of the good outcomes is now we have two missionary teams instead of one. God always works everything for the good. Uh, We don't know who's in the right and who's in the wrong here. There is a hint, potentially, uh, because it just says that Barnabas and Mark just leave. Uh, But Paul is commended by the brothers and sent out from the church. Uh, Maybe the side is on Paul. We don't know. But sad, isn't it? When brothers fight like this. I don't know if the fight was worth it, but they did. And yet God will use it for good. 16, 1 to 5. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. So let's see the map here. So we are, you see the upper third Cilicia? See that? That's a region. Just below that is Antioch. You see that? That's the starting point. They're going to head west around the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean. Tarsus is Paul's hometown. If you remember in the first missionary journey, they started out in, in Crete, or in Cyprus, excuse me. That was Barnabas' hometown. And then they went straight north to Crete into where Paul's home region was. So they start out in very familiar areas. Now Paul is heading west. He's uh, in Derby and then in Lystra. And you see those, Derby, Iconium, Lystra. And then there's another Antioch that isn't the same one. But they're sent from the Antioch church on the northern border of Judea, and head west from there. That's where we are. A disciple was there named Timothy. Now, you're all familiar with Timothy in the letters of First and Second Timothy. Timothy becomes kind of Paul's main right-hand guy. This is where we meet Timothy. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. Mom's a believer. His father was a Greek. Okay, pause there. Some of you have an unbelieving spouse. Maybe you're a wife with an unbelieving husband or a believing husband with an unbelieving wife, although that's less, uh, less, that's more rare. And here we have Timothy with a believing mother and an unbelieving father. And yet Timothy is greatly used by the Lord. And so don't despair. Follow the Lord yourself. Do not uh, allow your children to not come to church and Read the Bible with them, but uh, mothers and fathers without a believing spouse or single mothers or single fathers, the Lord's arm is not too short to save your child. And Timothy's one of the case and points of this. So have hope. Do the hard work of parenting your child in the Lord. It is hard, but it is not without hope. This Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers in verse 2 in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Okay. Okay. How many of you here last week, and how many of you here are here now realizing what is going on? 
Chapter 15 was all about the church saying, you do not have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And the next thing we read is Paul circumcising Timothy. Paul was the one fighting for no circumcision. And now Paul takes Timothy and circumcises him. (laughs) What do you do with that? If you're a parent, you know exactly what you do with this. Because we don't apply God's word woodenly, rigidly. Circumcision, if you think it's for salvation, is damnable. There is nothing but faith in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, for salvation. If you add anything to that, it's wrong. It's evil. It's adding beyond Christ. It's saying Christ isn't sufficient. But if you're working with a man and you want to go preach the gospel to Jews and they know that the man's father is not Jewish, you circumcise him so that he can have access for the gospel. Remember I said last week that one of the ways that they wrote the letter to the Gentile churches, this seemed good to us to do this. It seemed good. Remember that? And that made some of you mad. I can see it on your faces. Because you're very rigid. You only can apply the word of God woodenly. You want it black and white, clear cut, no deviation ever. And here's James writing and saying, it seemed good to us. At this point, this seems good. If you're a supervisor at work and you say something, they say, why do you do that? Seems good to me. If you're a parent and you say, do this, don't do that, and your kid always says, why, and what do you say? Seems good. Be quiet. This seems right. This is the flexibility, the freedom we have in Christ. Does this make sense to us? Isn't this helpful? So this isn't a compromise at all. This is applying the word of God with wisdom in certain situations here so that they can have access to the Jews of the gospel. In chapter 15, it's no circumcision if it's in regards to you need it in order to be saved. So this is a call to reasonableness among God's people. Be reasonable. Don't condemn Paul. He is anything but a compromiser. Don't condemn others in leadership. So Paul is circumcised, or Timothy circumcised. As they went on their way in verse 4 through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. Back to chapter 15. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Let's look back up at the map. So they're continuing to head west, Galatia. You've heard of that before, right? The book of Galatians. This is how this church is going to get its start. But they're being forbidden in verse 6 by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So you see the Troas there. And then you see a bunch of blue. That blue is the dividing line. On the right is Asia or Asia Minor. On the left is Europe. So, so far, the gospel has only ever been preached in Asia, and we're about to see how the gospel gets to Europe for the first time. So, they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word. They went up, or when they had come up to Mysia, 
They attempted to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. A quick word here. We worship a triune God. A God who is three and yet one God. And here we have the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit who is said to be the Spirit of Jesus. And we know there's God the Father. And so this is a consistent truth in Scripture that our God is triune. That one of the main confessions of biblical Christianity is God is one. And yet there are three equal co-eternal persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, nor the Spirit. The Son is not the Father, nor the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, Son. They're distinct, and yet there's one God. We see a little bit of that here. What do we make of the Holy Spirit or Jesus' Spirit not allowing them to go into those places? Well, I don't think this was like a force field, and when they were walking, you know, this is probably some regular human conflict that was keeping them from continuing to preach the gospel. And they're realizing that God is not wanting them there. This is how it often happens. Now, one of the dangers for you here is that you take what is happening to these fellows in verse 6 and 7 as like normal for believers. And you take it in only a super spiritual sense. What I mean is that like, you want to wait to decide if you should shop at Triggs or Aldi based on God's private communication to you and that God is forbidding you to go to Aldi and that you have to go to Triggs. And that you want to make, I'm, I'm being tongue-in-cheek here, but that you think the normal way God leads you is this way. That some secret spiritual communication to you of you should live in Three Lakes and not Rhinelander. Now, God may do that, but that's not even the norm for Paul, is it? Look at their first missionary journey. Where did they go first? To Barnabas' hometown. Why? Because it was Barnabas' hometown. It made sense. Where did they go second? To Paul's home region. Why? Because it made sense to go to Paul's home region. And when they went to those places, what was their methodology? Where did they always go first? To the synagogue to preach to the Jews. And when the Jews didn't want to listen, where did they go next? To the Gentiles. So the normal way that we live is we just live. We pray, we make wise decisions, we make decisions that seem to make sense to us, and we go. And there'll be sometimes through circumstances where God will redirect. But we just live. We live by faith. That's what we see here. So just take care not to like over-spiritualize this kind of stuff and normalize it. This is not the norm. It's not even the norm for Paul. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. So now they're on the western edge of Asia. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called them to preach the gospel to them. So now they're going to cross the water, enter into Europe, into what we know as modern-day Greece, to Philippi. So setting sail from Troas in verse 11, we made a direct voyage to Symothrace, and the following day to Neapolis. 
and from there to Philippi. Now, Philippi, we're familiar with the book of Philippians, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony remain in the city someday. So what they do is they target the main cities. Philippi is one of the biggest cities, Thessalonica, and so they're going to go to the major metropolitan areas. If I remember right, Philippi has a couple hundred thousand people, and so they're going there. Now, Philippi, it seems, doesn't have a Roman or a Jewish population. They don't have a synagogue. And so rather they go to a place where any Jews who live there would go for prayer in absence of a synagogue. That's what we're going to see on the Sabbath day. We went outside of the gate. Look at that. Or uh, in verse 12, we remain in the city some days. There's a change in the, in the pronoun, we, suddenly. Luke is with them. It doesn't give the, content, or the, the teaching of how Luke joined it, but now the author of this letter is with them. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. That place of prayer was a place that if there was no synagogues, the Jews might regularly gather or others. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who is a worshiper of God. So this is a Gentile who is a convert to Judaism, but not fully a convert to the dietary laws and so on. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Two things here. The Lord opened her heart. This is what we sometimes would call the doctrine of divine illumination, that God must open our hearts, illumine our hearts to receive his word, and that then she pays attention. The heart of man, our hearts, are sinfully disinclined to God's word, hard to it. The Lord in his grace must come and open our hearts to it. So parents, this is what you could pray for your kids. God, give my kids an open, tender heart to your words. May my kids love your word. It's a good prayer. And then we see this household. We'll see this several times. We saw it in Acts 11. We'll see it here. And we'll see it later in Acts chapter 16 and then in Acts 18. That she and her whole household were baptized. Now, we know one thing, if we know anything, especially from Acts 15, that salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone. Baptism does not save. So she and her household weren't baptized in order to be saved. Now, she's wealthy. It knows that she is a a seller, a marketer of purple goods. Purple was a very expensive dye. And that she has a whole household. Likely she had a big house. We'll see that in a moment. She had servants, slaves, and others, maybe children in her house. I think the best way to take this is that the normal way, a normal means by which God saves is through the household. Especially by converting the head of that household. Typically to be the husband and the father. We'll see that in the coming instances. And then as the head of the household believes the gospel, the rest believe and they're baptized. I think that's the best way to take it. I don't believe that this should be used as evidence to confirm infant baptism. That's an argument from silence here. It could be, 
I don't think so. It seems right to me that it isn't. And as we were going, verse 16, to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaims you the way of salvation. She wasn't saying that nicely, I don't think. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, the godly response of annoyance could be, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to practice or to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, into the dungeon, and fastened their feet in the stocks. We call this injustice. So this is again the third instance of persecution that's going to break out. First it was the Jews, then it was Herod, and now we'll see this consistently that sometimes the Gentile magistrates react very negatively to the preachers of the gospel. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. All right. I have often used the COVID situation to rebuke you. Can I do it again? Do you have patience to bear with me on this? To not find another church who's more friendly to your views on COVID? How many of you responded to what happened in the last two years with prayer and singing? Was that your main response? Wasn't it a rather a lot of fish shaking at the magistrates for their injustice? Freedom! You tyrants, which is true in some cases, and we should do that too. But haven't the people of God always responded to calamity and injustice with prayer and singing? Isn't this a wonderful picture of what it means to be a Christian and the hope we have in Jesus Christ? And shouldn't we rather be doing this firstly and chiefly and not so much whining and complaining? And so, brothers and sisters, learn this. When your kids, when you're treated unjustly by your parents, it would astound them if you went to prayer and singing and not so much griping. Or at the workplace, if your supervisor is being unjust, why are you so important that you can't handle that little bit of injustice and turn to Jesus with prayer and singing? Isn't this a great lesson for us of faith? Isn't this faith? What does it mean to live by faith? Here. Now, we should oppose injustice for the sake of others, not for our own convenience. We should stand up and run for elections and start businesses and start schools and do all of this good work to 
help our community, but it always starts with prayer and singing as the Christian response to trials and injustices. Can, have you ever been treated so unjustly as Paul and Barnabas? You're just minding your own business and suddenly a crowd comes on you, strips you naked and beats you with rods in front of the whole community and then not only puts you in prison, puts you in the inner prison of prisons and locks you in chains. <laughs> what, the, what just happened? What's our response? Faith. What does that look like? It looks like that. And suddenly... There was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword about to kill himself because he was a dead man. If the prisoner escapes, he killed the jailer, supposing that his prisoners escaped. But Paul cried a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Some of you need to ask that question. Your life is not lived for the glory of God. You really do not have true and genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And the next question you should be concerned about is, what must I do to be saved? And they said, here's your answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your whole household. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. The God who became man, who lived without sin, who gave himself in sacrifice in your place for your sins on a cross, who was buried. Three days later, he walked out of the grave, risen from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he has all authority over all and from where he'll return to judge the living and the dead. Believe on him. How? Well, by believing that that's true, by accepting it for yourself and by putting your trust in it, by giving yourself to it is the only hope for you. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to the house, set food before him, and he rejoiced along with the entire household. They believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. The jail reported the words to Paul saying, the magistrate have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out and go in peace. But Paul said to them, this is wonderful. They have beaten us publicly uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. <laughs> if you were Paul's companion, what are you thinking right now? Shut up. Just, <laughs> they're going to let us out. <laughs> Why is Paul doing this? One of the things we'll see throughout the book of Acts is that Luke is writing an apology, not an apology of like, I was wrong, please forgive me, but an apology and a defense for the Roman Greek-speaking world that the gospel is true. And that so far from Christians stirring up trouble and in the wrong, the Greeks or the Romans are always stirring up trouble in the wrong. 
This is another one. The magistrates were in the wrong. They were unjust. It wasn't Paul. The gospel was at stake. And so Paul's going to defend the gospel and defend the saints. <laughs> what courage here. The police reported these words to the magistrates when they were, and they were afraid when they had heard they were Roman citizens. Hopefully being an American citizen still has such prestige. And they came out, apologized to them, took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison, visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Now we've heard of Thessalonica. We have the first and second uh, letters of Paul back to this church. So Thessalonica is heading down the Greek peninsula <clears throat> where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in as was custom. On the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Some were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas, and a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Again, defending the truth of the gospel. This isn't just believed by one kind of people. This isn't just for the poor, it's for the rich. This isn't just for the slave, it's for the free. This isn't just for the male, it's for the female. This isn't just for the lower classes, it's for the upper class, it's for all. So the defense of the gospel. And so, men, this gospel's for you. Women, this gospel's for you. Young, this gospel's for you. Old, this gospel's for you. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. This is like the precursor to Antifa. That was a joke. That one fell flat. Seeking to bring them out of the crowd, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying there is another king, Jesus, which is true. Caesar ought to tremble. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The world is always unjust. What is the world always looking for? Money. They just wanted some money. They didn't care about the truth. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away to Berea, so again, Berea is just further south. And when they had arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Don't you want to be known as a noble person? Why? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So again, do you eagerly receive the word of God? Some of you have been Christians quite a long time. Are you still eager for the word of God? Do you examine it daily? Do you love it to not just know more data, but to have your, your mind, your heart more conformed to it? Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So even though the Bible is patriarchal, men have to do this work. It's very good for women. See that? Women are never left out of the kingdom. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God is proclaimed by Paul Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. 
Then the brothers immediately sent off, or Paul off on his way in the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. Remember, this is a three-year journey. We're getting a lot condensed here. Now he's going to one of the hubs of Greek culture. The Romans conquered the Greeks, but the Greek culture conquered Rome, and this was the place. This was the home of Socrates, of Plato. This is the home of all the philosophers. This is the center of Roman culture as far as sciences and philosophy and the arts. This is, if you want to know why we are the way in the West, this is the place. And Paul, after receiving, he commanded those who brought him to go get Silas and Timothy to bring him. They departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked with him when he saw the city was full of idols. So is your heart provoked at your idolatry? That's a good application. So he reasoned with the synagogue, the Jews, and the devout persons, the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoics all right, Epicurean Stoics were two kind of opposed philosophies of the day. Epicureans are those who are kind of like um, a Caribbean vibe. Just live for pleasure, go with the flow. All things happen by chance. Live high today for tomorrow we all die. Right? And Stoics were fatalistic, logical. The best way to live is a virtuous life obtained through logic. God is in everything and everywhere. So they were opposed, and Paul's going to end up debating both of them. Where am I? There it is. Okay, so these philosophers are conversing with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? What is this noisemaker? The word babbler there has the connotation of a bird at five in the morning just chirping like nuts, like a, you know, a, a cock crowing. It just quiet him down. What is this noisemaker saying? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things are. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their day in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For I passed along and observed object of your worship. I found also an altar with his inscription to the unknown God. So first he's going to say, uh, you're kind of ignorant. It's not a very nice way to start a sermon, is it? You're religious, but... You're ignorant in your religion. What you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he turns to God. They're blind. They're seeking in the darkness. Here's God. God made the world and everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live by your leave. He doesn't need you to build him anything. He's not served by you. He doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need a thing. God is not a needy God. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Listen, if you want to start somewhere with truth, start there. This is one of the main things the church has failed at. God is not like us. God is not like us. 
God is the transcendent, eternal, all-powerful creator. He's not like just a better version of us, a higher part of us. He is completely distinct, wholly separate. We live and move our being in him, not he in us. This is the fundamental truth of Christianity. He is not like you. He is totally separate from you. And you have nothing apart from him. He is not under your control. He's not looking to you for anything. We're completely dependent on him. And he gave, verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries and boundaries their dwelling, that they should seek God, and perhaps may feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one, as have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Now there should be some bells going off in your head. I thought sinfulness means that none of us seek God in Romans 3. Now it is true that we all seek God and none of us seek God. We all know that there's something beyond us. We know that this didn't happen by chance. Nature screams to us that there is a creator. Our own internal heart where God's law is written, we know there's something beyond us and we're seeking that, but we refuse to seek him. We're blind in our sin. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold and silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. That's called ignorance, Paul says in verse 30. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteous by a man, by Christ whom he's appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, start with the fear of God. Start with the fear of God. Start with God as the transcendent creator who has made you who determines everything about you, who gives you all things, and to whom you will give an account for how you used what he gave you. Start there with the fear of God. That will lead you to Christ. That's what Paul's doing. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you about this again. So Paul went out from their midst. Some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. So the gospel conquers, even philosophers. Philosophers are very annoying. You ever been around a philosopher? Oh, they never get anywhere. It's always questions, no answers. The gospel even saves them. Look at who the gospel saves. Do you have hope in the gospel for the salvation of sinners? The gospel saves. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. We just preached through 1 Corinthians, a little west of Athens, major city. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them. And because of the same trade... He stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers. We've heard this term tent maker in Christianity. Tent maker is somebody who goes onto the mission field but still works at another work in order to provide for their uh, Christian work. This is where we get that saying from. 
And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Um, <clears throat> is it Charles Spurgeon? Is that his name? First name's Charles. Okay. Charles Spurgeon's dad was an itinerant missionary. He was hardly ever home, and his mom was the main reason he came to Christ. And he remembers once as a young man hearing his mom praying for the souls of he and his siblings. And his mom were praying something to the effect that we have faithfully preached the gospel to my children. If they perish, it's on their own heads. And that so struck him of his responsibility to come to the gospel. And so children growing up in Christian homes, hearing this gospel preached week after week, if you turn from this, the blood's on your heads. You can't blame your parents. You're no victim. Your dad, your mom, many others have faithfully preached and lived the gospel before you. You have to choose whom you will serve, yourself or God, this world or the Lord, and it will come with consequences. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. Together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will harm, attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. I'm teaching a class in Sunday school right now on the doctrine of election. This is that doctrine. This doesn't mean these people who are my people in the city have already come to salvation. It means God has elected many in the city and Paul should go in confidence to preach the gospel. So sometimes the knock on the doctrine of election is it demotivates evangelism, it demotivates missionary, missions. It's just the other way. If you know that in Rhinelander, the, white, the harvest is white, it just needs to be plucked. God knows who are his. God has ordained some to salvation. Doesn't that motivate you to go? That's what Paul is being told by the Lord here. He stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was a proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. All right, God will defend you. You live for Christ. You tell the truth. And God will defend you. Right? Suffer for the gospel. Don't suffer for being a wrongdoer. Don't suffer for undercutting your superiors at work. Suffer for Christ and living for Christ, and God will defend you. The world is incredibly unjust. Look at this guy, Gallio. I'll deal with real crime, and then a real crime happens right in front of him, and he doesn't pay any attention to it. You can always expect injustice and unfairness from the world. Be Christian. God will defend you. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria with him, Priscilla and Aquila. Notice that the wife is mentioned before the husband. She maybe had greater prominence than her husband. That's why. So again, we need strong women. We need prominent women. We need women who lead. The church is always in need of godly men and women. 
at Centria, I don't have time to get in this story. He cut his hair uh, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself went in the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. He's back to where he started. After spending some time there, he departed, going on to his third missionary journey. All right. Is that enough? I'm tired. I'm not going to say anything more. Let's pray. Father, help us to see in this the great comfort that you have for your people. That we can live under your sovereignty, under your protection. That we are given to live for your glory, to preach your word. That you are in control of all things and yet what we do matters. And so God, help us to love the lost more. Help us to live for your glory more, and then entrust ourselves to you because you are the God who protects and builds and strengthens your church. And so God, continue to do that for us. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things to get throughout the book of Acts is look at the lengths that God goes to save people. Look who he sends. Look at what he does. And so that's the charge. Love this grace of God. Look at what he's done to get the gospel to us. We can trace the preaching of Paul right here to Europe, from there to Rome, and from there to Britain, and all the Scandinavian countries you come from, and from them to us. And this gospel will continue. And so let's just leave here being utterly grateful. Like the first song we sang, Who am I? And I would know this grace. And so gratitude is a charge. May the Holy Spirit work within you such that you bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. May God give you his grace in the coming weeks such that you would know by faith the inheritance which he has preserved for you in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept by him, by his power for you in heaven. And may our Lord God guard you by his power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord and I love you.